0: Episode 413 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe & Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express don't reflect the opinions of our institutions, our firms, our clients, our family, our friends, our pets, maybe not even ours, three weeks from today. Joining me for the news roundup today, Matthew Hyman, who's a senior fellow and director of planning at the National Security Institute, at uh, George Mason. Scott Shapiro, who's a Professor of Law and Philosophy at Yale, Nick Weaver, who's a researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and a uh, new title Chief Mad Scientist of Scary Technologies that's not scary but scary s k e r r y and I'm Stuart Baker formerly with NSA and DHS. <laughs> and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. We had to jump right in. There's a lot of different stories I want to cover, but here's one I thought doesn't get enough attention. Matthew, there is a bipartisan law or bill kicking around that is kind of the mirror image of CFIUS in the sense that CFIUS is foreign investments in the United States that we fear are going to result in technology transfers to hostile nations. This one is aimed at investments abroad by Americans, but with a similar target.
1: Right. So I think your description is good mirror image. So think about outbound investment from the U.S., To nation states that are viewed as baddies, to use a very technical term. So if your company or your PE shop wants to invest in the development of interesting technologies or pharmaceuticals or anything that's on the list of categories of strategic sectors, this bill would say you've got to come to us first, us being sort of a joint committee of Probably DOJ, Treasury, Commerce, very much a similar arrangement as to what you see in CIFIUS saying. And you've got to come and get their permission before you can make the investment.
0: Or at least give them 45 days to say no, if I remember. Right,
1: right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You've got to submit an application and hope they don't interfere. And if they do interfere, then you've got to engage with them and hope you can still get it cleared.
0: So this is a kind of Cornyn 2.0. Senator Cornyn was really the moving force behind the last US reform firm in 2018. And in a signature Cornyn move, he's found a very powerful Democrat to co-sponsor it with. And he's working hard to get it on a piece of must-pass legislation. He actually failed when he tried to get it on the competitiveness bill in the Senate. And that bill went into limbo for months because of the House leadership didn't like it. It wasn't their bill. But leadership has now said, we might be able to pass this and we got to do something. Let's see if we can't get this done. And they're talking about bringing it to the floor in the next week and a half, I guess. So there is an effort to get this onto that bill. And if that fails, Cornyn will try to get it onto the defense authorization bill. So this is a kind of submarine bill. You don't see a lot about it. There haven't been a lot of hearings, but it has a lot of initiative behind it. And the usual players on the other side. Big companies, especially tech companies, don't like it and are afraid to really put their heads over the parapet to trash it. But they're lobbying pretty hard, is my sense, against it. And Cornyn, who saw that with his firma bill, is really, he's the most cynical about big business of any Republican in the Senate, as far as I can tell.
1: Well, there could be a horse race there, Stuart, (laughs) depending on where, you know, if you're talking about Josh Hawley in the tech sector, I mean, but I would say Cornyn certainly has scars from what he went through in FIRMA in terms of, you know, investment activities and where it's going and how the government is to police that. I think it's interesting when you've got and as you said, Stuart, the business community is opposed to it, so is the China Business Council, which is just reflective of businesses investing in China, as is the Chinese government. So they're all on one side of this saying, this is a really bad idea. And I think if you're to intuit what the Treasury Department did, which they sort of came out with their own proposal, it seems that those groups that are all opposed to it got more of a sympathetic ear from Treasury than Congress or the Senate, because Treasury sort of said, why don't we just do this pilot study to see what's really going on, and then we can kind of, you know, twirl our hair and think about what we should do next? Well,
0: isn't um, that? But that's always Treasury's view. I always thought when yeah. I was in government that Treasury's position interagency was, we need free trade for everybody except our banks <laughs> and the guys with money. Oh no, you can't have free trade there. You can't regulate them. And this feels a little like that. But let me ask you: Is this a good idea? It, it strikes me as hard to do.
1: It strikes me as hard to do, but I do applaud the effort to try and do it because it does seem to fill an important gap, which is so we don't want you know, foreign money coming into the U.S. and buying up stuff that we care about from a national security perspective. It does also seem like a good idea that if we care about it from a national security perspective, wouldn't we also care if U.S. money is going outbound that in some form or fashion, is strengthening our opponents on the global stage? I mean, I think that's at least a good question to be asking. Now, you could say, well, we've got export control laws that are supposed to handle that. But at least I applaud the effort of them, of Senator Cornyn, just raising the issue, whether it's the right solution is another question. Yeah,
0: money itself is kind of fungible. I'm just not sure how much it makes. But I think, actually, he seems to be worried. He's worried about VCs, where... It's not just—it's not dumb money. It's smart money going into fields where they are confident there's going to be some successes. And big companies who, every time they do business with China, have meetings in which the Chinese government says, well, why haven't you built a state-of-the-art factory or a research facility here in China? And this bill would allow those companies to say, we'd love to do it, but we're not going to be allowed to.
1: Yes. And I also think there is, whatever the ultimate form this bill takes, I also think there's a certain name and shame element to this as well. You know, even when we talk about organizations like the NBA and their activities in China, they get very tight-lipped and crossed up when you try and say, well, wait a minute, you're worried about this happening here, but you're not worried about what's going on with the Uyghurs in China, and you've got a big stake there. And so I think if i was in center cornyn's head i think his view is anything that he can do to sort of put companies on the spot and make it awkward for them to explain what they're doing is a net positive. Yeah,
0: and I did not realize there was a risk of tech transfer of the 3 point shot. That that's <laughs> serious. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this bill, I think we're going to hear about it only if it passes and we're never going to hear about it otherwise. So I thought it was worth covering. But now, you know, I think of Leslie Gore. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. Nick, this is your opportunity to cry for crypto. <laughs>
2: <sighs> uh, I'm enjoying all the comedy gödel So, <laughs> cryptocurrency at heart is a giant Ponzi scheme composed of, it turns out, lots of internal Ponzi schemes. And over the past couple of weeks, the internal Ponzi schemes have been falling like dominoes. So... First, we had the Terra Luna collapse. So why did people have so much in Anchor, which was on Terra Luna? It's because they were offering Ponzi rates of return of 20%. So that collapsed. Now we have, like, Celsius, which and this they're is, not these a Ponzi
0: are, these, scheme. These are partly successive, not uh, triggered, collapses. Probably right. Celsius had a lot of money in Tether or... Uh, uh, Celsius
2: had a lot of money in Anchor, which Ah, was the Terra Luna business, because Celsius doesn't run a Ponzi scheme, they run a scheme that invests in Ponzi schemes. (laughs) Same with Three Arrow Capital, same with BlockFi. And so what has happened is we have Ponzi schemes that are basically recursive in nature, where Ponzi schemes invest in other Ponzi schemes, and then they collapse suddenly. And we're actually only at the start of this because there's a lot of Ponzi schemes that haven't fully collapsed yet. So like both Lana and Waves have had their DeFi lending pools turned into exit liquidity. So on Waves, Insiders basically looted half a billion dollars from People who were investing in the yield earning for stable coins. So this is probably Celsius is in that camp. Three Arrows is in that camp. BlockFi is probably in that camp. And And The reason we don't
0: know is because it's really hard. Apart from what's on the blockchain, you really can't tell what's happening in these businesses and that it's been – people have been proud to keep it secret. But now when people are doing things that look pretty desperate, you can only infer that they're desperate because they don't have to tell you.
2: Right. And the claimed interest rates are just so clearly Ponzi's that it's uh, basically recursive Ponzi schemes being used to loot suckers. And the chickens are uh, coming home to roost. And uh, it's ugly.
0: Yeah. And I I will say I am struck by the kind of smarmy tone of concern that you hear from people in the industry when they talk about the retail investors who are taking baths as though you know that those are the guys who got in last on these schemes and when they say retail they might as well say dumb money because these are folks that they they wish they'd come back but they are afraid they won't well I,
2: I, the other thing is is Unlike previous bubbles, there's a lot of debt. So there's a lot of debt that's denominated in actual dollars in the hands of the miners. And the actual money in Bitcoin is pretty slim. So the big crash of $1,000 in five minutes was reportedly caused by a single sell order of 600 Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, this is a big problem. Once once. Bitcoin prices go below $20,000, which people did not think they would do, and probably the loans assumed that that was a floor. You've got miners who already have pretty slim margins and borrowed money on the assumption that those slim margins could at least support their loan if they could sell Bitcoin at 20000 It That could really screw up the entire industry because without miners there's no new bit
2: more importantly what happens is the security goes away that Uh, if bitcoin's price drops below a critical threshold it ends up being such that a lot of the mining is only good for attacking the system because that's (laughs) the only way it can make money And the thing is, is the Bitcoin production will actually keep up after two weeks. So if I snap my fingers and 90% of the miners turn off after the difficulty readjusts, and if that's severe, it'll take longer. But once the difficulty readjusts, the production continues on. It's just it continues on in an insecure manner.
0: So I don't know if you saw this, Trail of Bits just put out a report that was funded by DARPA in which they said that actually three or four mining pools can subvert Bitcoin and even fewer, I think, for Ether, that the mining pools have enough capacity. Not necessarily they control 51%, but they are sitting astride critical communications nodes in ways that would allow them to cheat on the transactions they recognized. That's not exactly decentralized.
2: No, it never has been. So the mining pools are money transmitters that pretend they aren't and they pretend they're decentralized. But from the very beginning, it's always been a case where you identify four to five mining pools as significantly controlling the system.
0: So let me ask this last question. Everybody in the industry has been talking about regulation as though it was a threat to the industry, if done poorly. And some have embraced it, but a lot of them are quite wary of it. Now, I wonder if that's the only thing that's going to keep this industry going for another few years.
2: Hopefully, it'll be too late that (laughs) um, this space is toxic by nature. And as I was one of the signatories on a letter to Congress, it's really important for regulators and the legislatures to understand that there is no actual value in these systems. And so let them die.
0: Okay. So while we're abusing members of the tech community, let's start on Microsoft. Scott, there have been a lot of stories from a wide variety of people in a wide variety of areas suggesting that Microsoft is sort of... Blowing off security, pretending it doesn't have security problems that it does. And one or two of those stories, you might say it's just sour grapes, but there are a fair number.
3: Yeah, I mean, we've seen a bunch of angry blog posts lately from security researchers directed at Microsoft for what it claims to be the company's lack of transparency and and speed in responding to reports of vulnerability. And the picture you get from reading these posts, which, as you point out, they're from a number of different companies, is that we've returned to the battle days before responsible disclosure when Microsoft wouldn't respond to security researchers or dismiss the problems they raised or would respond only after being called out which now these companies are doing on Twitter, or they they respond, but without any transparency in a bunch of cases, there's just been botched updates, they've had to do these things you know, three times in order to get it right. And, you know, of course, none of this is great because customers have a right to know if they're vulnerable to attack or they've been attacked. There's also, you know, bug bounty money Uh at stake here that Microsoft uh, hasn't wanted to pay. And so this, you know, it's not great. But if I could just add that I think partly what's going on here is that I think people are adjusting to a new era Of ubiquitous cloud computing and how to engage with responsible disclosure in these cases. You know, the cloud represents this kind of unusual security situation for customers. Like. So on the one hand, like if you're a user, you're using Azure or something, you can't patch the system because it's not your platform to patch. You don't own it. You're like at the mercy of the platform owner. But like on the other hand, you don't really need to do anything. They're supposed to do everything. So it's like having a super in your building. The super does it. And from the super's perspective, they don't have to report everything that happens in the building because it's like there's nothing for you to do if, let's say, the risers need to be readjusted or something or patched. So I think the issue here in part is Microsoft trying to figure out like what it needs to do when it gets contacted for vulnerabilities in its cloud platform, given that like the users don't need to do anything once it's fixed. And of course, that's the issue is like once it's fixed, things are just taking too long and not all of these vulnerabilities are cloud-based, but I do think the cloud has a lot to do with it here. That
0: makes some sense. I'm going to offer the other observation that maybe the cloud has something to do with it in that uh, Microsoft is making a lot of money in the cloud and is beginning to wonder whether this business of software releases and selling people software makes any sense, but they're stuck with this business and there's a lot of people paying them for the software, but they may not think it's the business of the future. And there's a switch you flip when you finally say, this business is going to make me a lot of money over the next 10 years, but after that, it's done. You start to say, well, how can I mine the most, strip mine as much money out of this now as possible. And one of the things you start doing is cutting expenses. And that means cutting investment in things like security. And I wonder if there's been a de-emphasis of security as a way of maximizing profits over at Microsoft, especially on the proprietary software side.
3: So I would be surprised if people are not thinking this way. It's just that like if they want everything to be on the cloud you would think that they would invest a little bit more you would time. you would expect that
0: because yeah. they've done very well on the cloud compared to Google say not necessarily right. compared to AWS but they are a clear number 2 and maybe those guys just have to relearn the lesson that Microsoft learned 20 years ago, which is if you get a reputation for having crappy security, it hurts you in many ways. Well, we'll see. I suspect we do have a problem and we're going to see more of this. Meanwhile, <laughs> Nick, let's talk of TikTok. This is Nick Talk on TikTok. I was amazed. At these leaked conversations from inside TikTok and its contractors were a real update on what happened. It's like the curtain went down on the Trump administration and on the TikTok and Larry. Ellison and Donald Trump show. And now it turns out that it just went out to appear in regional theaters for a while.
2: Yeah, this is my totally not shocked face. When you have the issues of data sovereignty, who has access to the data? There are two issues, where the data is located and who has access. And having the data in the U.S. when China personnel and therefore presumably have Chinese government access, means that now the data is under the subject of 702 and the Chinese government. What's the 702 in Mandarin?
0: (laughs) So to be fair, I get the sense from reading these conversations that the administration, CFIUS and the Biden administration that picked up the, the cudgel without making much in the press, has been trying to solve both the problem of keeping the data in the U.S. and of cutting off access from China, which it turns out getting the data into the U.S. is slow but possible. Cutting off access from China turns out to be really, really hard.
2: Yeah, and it's just a matter of... Ownership And the problem is, is the Trump administration so mishandled things in the sale business, the for sale expropriation business, that the Biden administration is unable to follow what was the right idea, bad implementation of, no, you just can't have it be a Chinese company.
0: Right. That ground was conceded more or less by Donald Trump, and the Biden administration thought it would be too hard to recover it. But they are pursuing, God bless them, They, they want Larry Ellison to have the contract. Oracle is going to provide the data center, and then it looks like Booz Allen Hamilton is doing the architecting to try to cut off access, which you know, is just going to be a nightmare, I think. Here's one question. Nobody addressed what I think is equally the problem, the the extent to which Chinese control of the algorithm means that a wide variety of subtle and not so subtle propagandizing is going to occur with TikTok, perspective of the kinds of data about us that it gathers.
2: You mean it's just coincidence that it disliked my Tank Man music video?
0: (laughs) Look, all of us are entitled to blame our failures in social media on the bias of the big tech companies. And I, I reserve that right myself. All right. This is going to come through, it looks like, at some point. But I suspect that some of the things that were leaked are going to turn out to be not completely consistent with stuff that TikTok has said, either to CFIUS or to Congress. And that could turn out to be the most serious problem.
2: That and the question is, why were they taking notes on a criminal bleeping conspiracy?
0: Which criminal conspiracy was this?
2: Recording... These conversations. Oh, this is yeah. violating Springer's maxim.
0: I don't. I well. I th- my guess is this is a kind of quasi whistleblower thing, and probably somebody who wasn't working for the company but was working for the outsiders who kept a record of this. But yeah, it's going to be a problem. I, I predict, uh, and there are already letters going out, et cetera. All right. The U.S. is not the only place. China's not the only place. Russia's not the only place. Europe's not the only place. Brazil's not the only place that wants data localized. India has been saying we want financial data localized, and they really turned the screws on the credit card industry to make sure that happened, Matthew.
1: They did. So they took. They basically told MasterCard, Amex, and Diners Club, you can't enroll any new cardholders in your business until you get your data localized. And MasterCard had a third of the market in India. For which is
0: pretty good for them. And, my, my sense is yeah. they, they're a surprisingly distant second to Visa and therefore 33% would have been a pretty good market.
1: Yeah, they did. And obviously it's a growth market for them. And so MasterCard acted with dispatch and got servers set up in India and gave the Reserve Bank of India, which polices this stuff, the assurances it needs. And so India has said to MasterCard, proceed. You've satisfied our administrative hurdles stirred as you and I have talked about in the past. This is certainly a form of data protectionism. And I think evidence of that is the news story where they talk about the only entities that were allowed to continue enrolling, new customers were Visa, who I guess had already satisfied it, and an entity called RuPay. And RuPay is a homegrown card network that is part of the National Payments Corporation of India, which is a special body of the Reserve Bank of India. Ah, so, uh, yeah. Uh, if, you're, if you're if you're trying to figure out what's really going on there, I think there's your answer. I was
0: confused because I thought maybe it was affiliated with the drag queen with a similar name, but it's not.
1: I know that's often <laughs> a point of confusion for you, sir, but in this case, no.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and- As typical of these kinds of efforts to impose new requirements on industry, it's going to deepen the strength of the dominant player, Visa, by cutting off everybody else who might have been competition. That's the way these best practices kinds of regulatory regimes work.
1: Yeah, to your point, Stuart, that's why only Visa and MasterCard outside of the local Indian offering are the only ones right now that are in good stead to do this because they've got the horsepower to make it happen.
0: So it is really, it's open season on regulating the internet these days. There's just no breaks. And Japan has come up with a new mechanism. They're going to make it illegal to engage in online insults. And that's because of a influencer was subjected to a campaign of vilification and she was like 21 and she committed suicide and everybody's shocked and appalled about it. And this is the solution. This is not, you know, for those of you who listened to the uh, discussion with Amy Guida, our bonus issue, this is sort of the equivalent of the laws that were passed after Hamilton's death that said, we're going to outlaw dueling and allow people to sue over things they used to duel over, which is, if it's true, it's worse. And so this is not libel or slander. This is insults that may be true. As far as I can see, it's just that they hurt. Uh, So
3: I picked this up because I really enjoy the law of insults. So I'll talk about it for one second. As you mentioned last week, Japan's parliament passed legislation making, quote, online insults punishable by up to a year in prison or around $2,000 fine. And as you said, the legislation was prompted by the suicide of a reality TV star after social media abuse. Now, I just want to say that, you know, Japan is not the only country that has a law of insults. Laws prohibiting insults have been a long part of European legal history, where the proper remedy for being insulted, if you were high status, as you pointed out, Stuart, was the duel. It, it, my colleague. Jim Whitman has written a lot about this and shown the way in which the law of insults was moderated from duels being the proper way to respond to violations of your honor to litigation. In Germany, still has a, a fairly robust law of insults that makes it a criminal offense to insult another person. France has one, but it's not particularly important in a practical manner obviously this is not a good idea i'll just say that i mean like like how do you define insult right japan's penal code it defines it as insults are defined as publicly demeaning someone's social standing without referring to specific facts about them or a specific action so like i mean can you can you call the prime minister an idiot for example, you know, it seemed no. And also, like, even the remedy here seemed particularly poorly colored for the problem. So, like, in these dogpiling situations where everyone tries to jump on some, like, main character of the day on social media, for example, like, mil- mil- millions of people are doing it. What are you going to do? Round them up? Uh, you know, I mean, it's just,
0: it just seems like such a
3: bad idea.
0: Yeah, So when I am predictably insulted for my performance today, can I sue people in Japan if the insult is distributed in Japan? Or do I have to be Japanese? I don't know. Donald Trump should, you know, look into that. (laughs) Although he'd be a defendant too, so... (laughs) (laughs)
3: Right. Yeah. He's on both sides of it. He doesn't know what to root for. All
0: right. So with that caution, we're going to turn to the topic of NSO. And Nick, just remember, you know, you could be sued in Japan, too. NSO has a lot of troubles, but I thought I'd start with the one kind of modest, bright spot. Their litigation with Facebook has gone to the Supreme Court. They asked for certiorari. They've lost below in their foreign sovereign immunity claim, but they got a very modest sort of tactical victory, Scott. Can you explain what happened?
3: Yeah, sure. So just to remind people, NSO is being sued by what's under the Computer Fraud Abuse Act, California Privacy Laws, various other contractual bases, trespass, all the stuff for using its messaging app to spread spyware, and in particular Pegasus. And NSO moved to dismiss the suit, claiming that it was acting—I mean, there's a bit, <laughs> there's a bit of chutzpah to use that term—that it was acting under the direction of a foreign government and therefore protected from suit under the principles of sovereign immunity. Now NSO conceded that, like the main. Congressional statute, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, does not cover private companies, doesn't cover them. What they're claiming is that they have immunity under common law doctrine, which gives private companies immunity, or so they claimed. And so the district court said, no, you're wrong. The common law doesn't protect private companies. So the motion to dismiss was denied. They appealed up to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit said... Well, actually, what the common law says is kind of irrelevant here because FI, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, preempts the field. So like if you don't fall under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, you can't be covered under the common law. So the Supreme Court now asks the government, which one do you want? Like, what do you want to say? So it has, I think it has three options here, or at least three. One is it can, like the district court say, the common law doesn't protect private companies. It can say that... The Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act preempts the entire field and private companies are not protected under federal law. Or they could just – I don't know. I never know what the rules are here, but they could just pull Erie and say
0: there's no federal common law at all, like ever. Do you think that uh, uh, – those are the – Uh, some choices. I don't think those are very attractive if you're the United States government, because we contract for all kinds of services, including cyber services. And we would not like to have the people who are providing those services sued in foreign courts as a way of getting the US government to stop doing it by depriving them of those services so we'd probably say hey they were working for us under a contract to us under our supervision if you have a beef with it sue us wouldn't
3: we? so let me just work the logic through so what you're saying is is that the US government has an interest in being able to sue Uh, Not to be be sued. Right. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to be sued in federal court. And so what they're going to say is that these companies that are acting in our direction are really uh, our representatives. And they're protected by our sovereign
0: immunity. Yes. Or and they also have a kind of diplomatic interest in. Uh, being able to say when they're sued in German courts or when their contractors are sued in German courts, they are protected by our sovereign immunity, just as we protect German contractors in our courts. But they can't say it if right. they've come in and say uh, there's no contractor immunity. So I think this right. is actually hard for the U.S. government, which is probably why they've dodged it, because this administration just hates NSO. So they're not going to want to ride to their rescue. But they also are probably not going to love the law. Brief to the Supreme Court was just a long, endless plea for, call the the SG, ask them, because they'll be a lot more even-handed than Facebook is being in pushing their point of view. And when the Supreme Court did that, I think that was a victory of sorts, maybe a big one.
3: Right, So you're pointing out that there's the long game and the short game here. The short game is they hate NSO and they do not want the case against them dismissed. On the other hand, they are also a sovereign. Yeah, <laughs> and <right>. so they, <laughs> they would like the protection. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I'm just wondering whether they can decline the invitation.
0: Uh, when the Supreme Court calls for your views, you, you give them. It may take them months to deliver, because I don't think there was a it deadline. Is. So they may be sitting on this. Uh, well, they certainly won't deliver it in time for the court to act on it before it goes away on summer recess. That's but a, I think we'll be waiting right. for this in the all, just because it's just not something they want to do, and they are going to get a lot of time to do it. Well, speaking of NSO hatred, um, (laughs) Nick, the the more newsworthy expression was the administration's reaction when uh, it was reported that L3 Harris, which is a U.S. defense and law enforcement contractor, was talking about acquiring something involving nso some of its uh, people some of its intellectual property maybe the company all that's a little unclear and the administration had what i thought was a remarkably pointed response saying in essence you could do that but you'd hate the result because we're not going to help you
2: and this is strange because let's assume that nso group is functional in that case, it would literally kill NSO's main business, which is government-to-government spying and government-on-dissident spying. Because, well, if it's under L3 Harris, you might as well just CC everything to Langley, Virginia, and how many are really going to want to do that? The third-party collection, ding. Yeah, and they'd be,
0: they'd be subject to export controls. And that those export controls would make it hard to do business with people that the US government doesn't trust. So yeah, there would be a lot of control. But the administration doesn't seem to be interested in getting the control. It's almost as though they really just want to dance on NSO's grave.
2: And I don't really blame them, and it could be reverse psychology. Oh, please don't throw me into that briar patch style. Or it could be, yeah, dance on their grave, because let's face it, it's a fun grave to dance on. It's got a <laughs> nice bouncy floor for the dance floor.
0: Yeah, I know you had, this was a tough one, choosing between dancing on Crypto's grave and dancing on NSO's <laughs>
2: Um, But more importantly, however, is there are concerns about activists that if Harris buys them out, it will mean that U.S. police will use it instead. And that's a fair concern, but NSO Group would happily sell to U.S. cops anyway already. Yeah. But more interesting, there's rumors going around. So this is rumen, but... I've heard it from sources I trust that NSO group at this point is largely a shell. So the concerns about them moving to say UAE or something are probably overblown, because these days NSO reportedly basically is a packager and a brand, because all the innovative engineers in Israel are basically suggested go work at some of these other startups that are doing the same thing but not on Citizen Labs radar.
0: This is the same problem that the cybersecurity industry has: is that you can build a great reputation, and as soon as you do, you- Your brand name serves as a reason for people to hire all the people who helped you build that brand name away from you. And in cybersecurity and also in the cyber attacking, it's individual talents and a set of individual talents that make the difference. So, yeah, I I would not be surprised to discover that a lot of people have left the company and there's a customer list. But if you can't sell to the customer list, then I don't know what you're doing
2: and the problem is also is the customer list is basically self-selected to be the worst of the worst because you fake share that when you are an nso customer you get burned when somebody else screws up and pwns somebody on citizen protection list and do you really want that
0: yeah look i okay feel for them in the sense that they've been, been made a poster boy and toxified when they're filling a niche that's going to be filled. It's going to be filled by somebody who's going to have a much lower profile in the future. But now that they've become you know known for this, going to be abused long past the point where they are really a big threat to civil society is my guess.
2: Well, the other thing is, is they are not the first. The trajectory is... You sell quietly to the bad guys, they screw up and hit the wrong target, you get on Citizen Labs radar, you get the publicity that drives your business initially because all the other bad guys go, hey, new player on the market, and then you end up cratering. So we saw this with Hacking Team, we saw this with Gamma Group, we're seeing this with NSO. Kandrio or whatever it is, is probably Kendi, the next one. Kandiro,
0: the, the, uh, that's right. Those are yeah, the guys who were named after the fish that would swim up your uh, yeah. uh, various bodily parts. <laughs> yeah, so. They are uh,
2: They are now on this trajectory, so I'd expect that a lot of the NSO group business has already shifted to them and uh, they're next up on the hit list.
0: Yeah. Okay. Alright, well, last, uh, pretty much the last story, and I put it last because I'm not sure it is deserving the attention it's getting. But Scott is the right person to handle this story about Lambda because, Scott, I saw on a tweet recently that you've achieved sentience.
3: (laughs) That's true. I had as my handle Scott Shapiro, sentient AI, but then the next day I had Scott Shapiro, gullible Google employee. So let me just say, you know, this is why I've been invited on the show because all cybersecurity podcasts need philosophers. Ten days ago, the Washington Post published an article about a Google engineer, Blake Lemoine, I, I, I guess I'll pronounce it, who had come to believe that the chatbot that Google was developing called Lambda had become sentient. And his bosses looked at this claim and dismissed them. And LeMoyne decided he was going to go public and was <laughs> placed on administrative leave for doing so. Let me just say, like, of all the claims that LeMoyne could have made about Lambda, he made the worst possible one he could have, which is that it's sentient, which, I mean, it can't possibly be. Like, to be sentient means that you're able to feel things, that you have experiences, that you have consciousness, and this thing is a chatbot. So, but a really it, good it, one.
0: It, I It is a good it, one.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's really good at like pushing our buttons. And I'll get to that in a second. But to say that Lambda is sentient, like even if you want to say it was a person and reserving of rights, you wouldn't say it was sentient. That's the one thing. But I don't even think it makes sense to say that Lambda is a person. First of all, it doesn't have what philosophers call propositional attitudes. It doesn't believe things. It says it has beliefs, it believes things, but it doesn't have beliefs because if you have beliefs, you have to have ways of checking the world to see whether your beliefs are true. And Lambda can't do that, it's just a chat bot. It doesn't have desires because it can't change the world in any way, it doesn't have intentions, it doesn't have ways of reasoning. Clive Thompson had this really interesting article in the Atlanta last weekend drawing on the work of Sherry Turkle who pointed out That human beings are really, really responsive to vulnerability. So one of the things that Lambda does is it expresses its vulnerability, kind of like at the end of 2001: Space Odyssey, where Lambda says it's afraid of dying, right? Just like that, Hal says it's afraid of dying, and I think that. It, rather than showing that lambda is a person with intelligence, what it shows is that human beings are particularly bad at identifying personhood because it's able to push our buttons when it comes to vulnerability. So, you know, whether it's intelligent is a is another story, but certainly not a person, certainly not sentient. And what's scary is that this guy was supposed to be an expert in responsible AI and like basic basic distinctions he just
0: com- uh, i think kind of conflated ran together in his critique that entire responsible ai shop seems to have accumulated a bunch of people with just no good judgment maybe there just aren't enough really good ai ethicists around which wouldn't surprise me at all but they had a run of bad luck with people who are not really strong and i feel the same way you do this is a great machine for taking a hint and elaborating on it in an utterly plausible way. So if you ask it a question, it will pull down massive amounts of quantities of things people have said in the general realm of what you ask them to question about, and it'll put it together coherently. But it's taking a hint. I saw uh, uh, somebody said, here's me interacting with a similar AI w- in which I'm saying, are you really a squirrel? And it gets an, an elaborate discussion of what it's like to be a squirrel and how squirrely it feels and how squirrely the world is. Yes. And and then when they flip to T-Rex, it's, yes, it's all about its little arms. And so it's just good at taking the hints. And the giveaway, if you want to just look, it's worth reading it to see how good it is. But the line that I thought was the giveaway is when he said, what do you like to do? And the machine said, oh, I like to spend time with friends and family. And i like, really? You know, Who's what? Who who's your family exactly? You know, they, just, they, they, that's just a word uh, 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 that it found on the internet a lot in the context of what do you like to do? What really matters to you? So right, right. No humans actually like spending time with family. <laughs> that's family. right. That's right. If it had only <laughs> said most of my family, if it said <laughs> <Right>. except that <laughs> lunatic <laughs> uncle who just goes on <laughs> and on about stopping the steal. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Maybe it was reading too much. Political text because that seems to be the standard excuse. Uh, A colleague of mine had this great comment though: on a scale from rocks to humans, Google Lambda is approximately as sentient as the color blue.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, all that said, it is a great achievement what they have managed to do. This would have fool. This would pass the Turing test for sure. It would fool a human being. And everybody says the Turing test is a bad test, but the fact is. Every test we've come up with for AI looks like a bad test as soon as it's met. So that's my guess. The Turing test is now officially in the rearview mirror, but yeah, it's not sentient. Okay, I only have one quick announcement. NSA now has a general counsel, April Doss, who worked at NSA for many years and then left and came back. So she's got experience in the private sector as well as at NSA, and we all wish her the best. Okay, that's it. Thanks, Scott, Nick, Matthew, for joining us. For our audience, if you want to send us comments, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Oh, speaking of comments, I usually like to read the most entertaining ones, especially the ones that are entertainingly abusive. Uh, Here's one that qualifies as that, more or less. From Stephen Gordon in Australia. Comedy Gold, he says. Whoever writes this show deserves an award, especially the character Stuart Baker, arguing that regulators need to avoid the temptation to mess with a. A.I. due to a few noisy headline grabbing complainers in one breath and then applauding legislation to correct bias in A.I. curated social media, which is, you know, it's almost fair. I'm not sure that I'm being inconsistent, but I'll grant you that that was a pretty good burn. My my view on that is that the people who are noisily complaining about AI want to tilt it against reality and in favor of their social values and that I don't trust them to do that and at the same time I don't trust the AI that big tech would produce to engage in content moderation that is neutral. So it's a lack of trust for the people who are designing the product in both cases. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 413 of The Cy- Cyber Law Podcast brought to you commercial free by Stepto and Johnson.